session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Hulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is Sodom and Gomorrah by Marcel Proust. This is the fourth of seven volumes in um, his book, In Search of Lost Time, or his series of books, which is all one um, collection. So this is book four, Sodom and Gomorrah by Marcel Proust. If you've heard me talk about the other three, you know I really have enjoyed them. So looking forward to reading this one and talking about it with you next week, or actually it'll be in two weeks. Uh, let's get to the book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight. It is Who Gets Believed by Dina Nayeri. Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough. Uh, really fascinating book um, where, as the title and subtitle talk about it we're talking it looks at who gets believed and who doesn't who do we trust who do we not whose stories get believed and, and whose stories do not and she also weaves throughout it her own personal stories related to this being a refugee herself from Iran and dealing with that process um, dealing with religious types of issues her mother's side of the family and mom being a Christian and her experience within religion, um, also dealing with her husband's brother, Josh, a tragic story that's woven throughout the book, who had some mental health issues and challenges, and she herself, Dina Nairi, the sister-in-law of this individual, doubted him or thought he just needed some tough love, and um, but eventually, this is a spoiler, but it's it's in the book, sadly, his her brother-in-law takes his own life. Josh takes his own life. And so these issues of, did I believe him? Did I not believe him? Maybe he was still crying for help. What exactly was going on? But she shares these stories of being believed and not being believed when the stakes are incredibly high. And a big focus is on individuals who are seeking asylum, refugees who are seeking asylum in a host country. The ones uh, that come up often are the UK and also the United States and people's experiences and what makes people get believed and what doesn't uh, get lead to them being believed. And as she shares, really at times it becomes like a performance or this coded language or do you know the right things to say or the right things to avoid? Are there things that you should exaggerate or amplify? Should you play down your pain or suffering? And as she shares, it can often be very unfair, the standards that people are held to or the ways people are made to understand what is true. And so people are often coming to these countries for freedom, for safety, that if they go back, they can be killed or tortured, as they have often already experienced, and very often they're turned away 
because they didn't say things quite right or their story didn't quite stay the same, didn't stay consistent. Uh, And arbitrary reasons that don't necessarily reflect whether or not someone is telling the truth often get in the way. And so even if we look at, uh, we say, who gets believed, all of us every day we are going through this process of hearing people talk and share their stories or what they're going through, and we either believe or don't believe with varying degrees of confidence. The stakes are usually most much lower in most instances, but we're always doing that. And we tend to think we're really good at it. Most people think, oh, I can spot a lie from a mile away, or people, no one can trick me, no one can fool me. Um, you know, if someone's lying, I can tell, I can always figure it out. And I would say we tend to think we're better lie detectors than we are. Most of us think that we could figure people out. But really, when they do research on these things, even often people who are trained to detect lies or figure out the truth, interrogators or people who are in police or FBI, CIA, they and or psychologists, uh, myself would be included in that category as far as professionals, don't do much better than chance. So they're, we're not really good at it as much as we think we are oh you know you know i've heard so many things like if you i'm doing it right now scratch your face while you say something you must be lying or i remember there was some movie i think i forgot which one it was where it's like if you look to the left that means the person is let's say i forgot which way it was creating a story so they're lying and if they look to the right it means they're telling the truth and we're looking for these ways and there's lots of books on these things too how to you know with body language know what people are thinking know what people are feeling and my understanding of it is that those things are mostly not reliable and just trying to sell you on something because we all wish we could always know who's telling the truth and who's lying, but really we can't, and you have to accept that. You can do your best to try to understand and, and see what's going on, but to think that you can know and someone always knows, that doesn't mean that they do know or they will be able to figure it out. And also something um, we learned from research in eyewitness testimony is that the confidence of the individual witness is not an indication of the veracity or the truthfulness of what they're saying. So just because someone says, oh, I know for sure it was him. He was the one at the crime scene. Even if they're more confident, it doesn't mean it's more likely to be true. And so similarly, when someone says, oh, I know that person is lying, or I know they're telling the truth, we have to swallow a, a strong dose of humility and recognize none of us have that ability. Uh, But what's sad is, as she talks about in the book, people's lives and their deaths can be determined based on who gets believed and who doesn't get believed. And it really is heartbreaking, these stories that she shares throughout the book of people who are seeking asylum, who have gone through torture. One individual from Sri Lanka, uh, the code name I think is KV, who has these, this is horrible story of being burned with these metal rods and it leaves these marks and he had to they even poured gasoline on them and I think they were threatening to burn him or but they didn't or just to fear him but it also of course did damage on the wounds and he was just went through this unspeakable torture and once he got to the UK he was able to sneak out of this kind of a prison that he was in there or jailed in some way and he gets to the UK and they don't believe his story. And they even say it was self-inflicted. And then not just it was self-inflicted, because of course he wouldn't be able to reach those areas and to burn himself. 
that he had uh, someone do it by proxy or he had someone collaborate with him. And maybe even, well, if he much stuff passed out because they said that some of the scars on his back, um, it would be impossible, the doctor had said, for him to have not moved at all because if your skin is burning, even if you're held down, you're going to make some kind of a reaction, a sudden movement, so the scars won't be so even. And so he must have been passed out. Then the theory was that possibly he was under anesthesia, meaning so it had to have been a doctor with some kind of training who did all of this to him um, to allow for him. So he did all this so he can get asylum. So he was trying to trick the system. And really is quite outlandish, the beliefs or the ways that they twisted the narrative to make it fit the story that he was faking or that he was not really in danger. Um, but eventually had to go, I think, all the way up to the UK Supreme Court for him to be granted asylum. Um, and the doctor who wrote the report, who looked at him, he believed his story, but the officials who had the power to make the ultimate decision did not. And so it's heartbreaking to see these stories. And of course, there are people that make up things and lie and and will try to manipulate a system that does exist. So we can't just say every single time it's the truth. But she does point out these inconsistencies of who we believe and who we don't believe. And really often it does come down to certain things like how things are said or race and other issues can play a big part. For example, in the United States, and I think she was sharing similarly in the UK, that black women who are in labor and in general black women won't have their pain believed or if they say they're in pain doctors are more likely to dismiss it as either being exaggerated or not real or that they can handle it and we see a, a very very painful but real statistic that we have to face in the United States is that women black women die in childbirth i don't have the exact statistic but at a much higher rate than non-black women in labor. And so this is really something uh, pointing to this real issue of who gets believed when someone says they're in pain, who is more likely to get believed that they're in pain and something is wrong and something should be done about it rather than to not be believed. Um, as I was reading the book, she also had a section that talked about false confessions and these techniques that are used, I think one of them is called the read technique, but different ways that interrogations happen in police departments across the U.S. where suspects are put under intense pressure to give false confessions and essentially lied to. Sometimes they, and they it's actually legal for the officers to say things like, well, we have the evidence. We have the evidence that proves you did it. We know, just say you did it so we can let you go, or they try to make it seem like if you tell me We'll let you go or make it easier on you when that's not the truth. But they can essentially say anything to get this confession. And so um, I've seen so many accounts and read so much about it now that I completely know that false confessions can be very true, meaning that people do make false confessions. But it often can seem puzzling for someone to think, how could you ever admit to a murder you didn't do? Or in the book, there's a case of an arson. How would anyone ever admit to it? And so it's not that people are admitting to it in the first second or the first minute, but it's often after hours and hours of interrogation and really manipulation to, to get the suspect to then admit to something that they didn't do. And we've seen it happen so many times, I can't put a number on it, um, but so many times that this has happened where someone has given a false confession, it's really just because it's not that they need to find the right person 
the police just needs to find a person to blame for the crime or to get the guilt for the crime. And it feels like in that sense, justice is served and the case is solved. And so as I read the book, I thought of my friend Jerome Dixon, who you maybe will remember was on the show a few years ago, who was wrongfully imprisoned for over 21 years, um, beginning at the age of, I believe, 17, for a murder he did not commit. And he was interrogated for over 25 hours. And, um, you know, they used all sorts of those same techniques. And he didn't have a lawyer with him. He couldn't contact his family. And he's actually pushed and done a lot of work to have legislation go forward where you can no longer do that, that especially for a teenager, that they have to have access to their parents or a lawyer or someone with them, that we can't just have them uh, locked, you know, for 25 hours being interrogated and just berated. And at that point, you just start to break down. I haven't gone through that to know, but just you can understand and imagine. And so they tell you, just say you did and we'll let you go. Again, they do say things like this or we'll let you see your mom. Don't you want to see your mom? Just tell us you did it and then, you know, it, it will let you go. And then they say we, you did it and then they put you in jail and they, you never get out. Um, and so Jerome was wrongfully imprisoned for 21 years of his life and had so much of it taken away. And actually this weekend on Saturday night went to his 50th birthday party. And um, he actually gave, a, you know, when they brought out the cake, everyone asked him to say a speech and he gave a little speech and shared a bit about how much I was taken from him, but, you know, um, and how he doesn't really like doing birthday parties for these reasons, but um, was happy to see him celebrating and enjoying that. But it's really heartbreaking to see who gets believed and who doesn't get believed and how we can push someone in a certain way to have to say a story that even they don't believe. And then we take that to be the truth. So the book I thought was a, a great exploration of this theme. And even she shares her own disbelief, as I was saying, not believing her brother-in-law's uh, mental health issues or believing they were as serious as they were, they were the way that he expressed them in different ways that she also didn't believe. And her husband sometimes points this out to her, this skeptical side, or that she doesn't want to be tricked or using this term guile uh, that comes up. So it, it was fascinating and heartbreaking, really, as I read the book and hearing these stories of people who have gone through torture and finally are seeking refuge and then are denied that safety and sometimes even sent back to their countries where they might face the same consequences or even worse, not make it out again to tell that story. Um, and, and so I really did enjoy this book, powerful, intense. Uh, her writing was very, uh, it, it just made you think and reflect and feel things very strongly. And I, I did enjoy the book as heartbreaking as it was because I think she illustrated some very important points to contemplate. It's not clear who you believe or who not to believe, but to recognize a lot of the biases we have and who we think we should be believing or what's the, the codes that sometimes people use. And it's just, if you know those codes, you get believed. And if you don't, you won't get believed. And if you're seeking asylum, when you're talking about getting tortured, and if you one time say it was at 6 p.m. and the next time say it was at 7 p.m., they might use that to mean, oh, you're lying, when really we know that when people are going through intense trauma and those kinds of sufferings, those types of aspects of the memory um, might not get coded or be remembered. Even in general, we might not remember the time of something or if there were six people or seven people, those types of things. Um, but often because they're looking for reasons to reject and they, they get encouraged to reject, similar to how 
in the police departments, they get um, credit for convicting someone or finding a culprit, even if it's not the person who actually committed the crime. When they're looking for reasons to reject, they'll come up with any reason to think that it's made up and fake. And it's really, it really was heartbreaking to read those stories, but I'm very happy I did read the book. So do highly recommend this one. Uh, Who Gets Believed When the Truth Isn't Enough by Dina Nayeri. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In the previous segment, I was talking about the book Who Gets Believed by Dina Nayeri. Um, And it made me reflect on some things about when we tell stories or when we... um, try to recap what happened. And especially when I'm doing work with couples in therapy, what can be remarkable is that sometimes a couple will say, okay, we had this argument last Thursday and one person starts the or starts retelling the argument. And then the other person is like, I can't believe you lied so much or you made up so many things or that's not at all what happened. And so very often I will clarify that it doesn't mean that either of you is lying, but it's very likely that you will remember what happened differently. So again, going back to what I was saying in the previous segment, yes, there are people that will intentionally lie and mistell a story or manipulate the details. That, of course, does happen. But with two honest people trying their best to retell a story, we find that people will remember things very, very differently. And so, uh, again, this is one of those areas where taking some humility is very important to recognize. Although you might think you remember exactly what happened, uh, it's very, very likely that you are remembering things in a way that fits a narrative or that you don't even realize you're misremembering things. As I shared, I forgot which book it was, um, in recent weeks, that after 9-11, for example, they would do um, research that they would ask you, okay, where, you know, where were you? What happened? And people would write their stories down that this is what happened. This is, you know, where I was. This is how I saw the news. I was, you know, let's say in the living room and my mom was there and we saw it and we couldn't believe it. And then we, you know, did this and this. And then people come back a year later and they say, tell us what happened on when for 9-11. How did you find out? And they say the story. And now already some major details have changed, but they're still very confident because it's like, how how could I ever forget where I was on 9-11? Of course I remember. But in their own words, they said it differently a year ago. And as the time passes, now more minor details might change, but the story evolves. So it's hard for us to believe this sometimes because the memory feels so vivid. It's like, no, no, I remember exactly. I was sitting here, my mom was to the right, the TV news came on, we did this, this. no, it's exactly that. What are you, how could it be anything different? And so I remember early in grad school hearing this term, maybe it was even undergrad. Let me see if I'm remembering it right. That's funny. If I'm remembering it right about memory, but that memory is a reconstructive process. That's what it was, something like that. So memory is a reconstructive process. What does that mean? So we often think, or we would hope that our memories are like these file cabinets or, you know, these digital recordings. And then I can go back, okay, September 11th, 2001, pull up that file or, okay, just some random date, 
April, uh, December 14th, 2006. Let me go pull that file up and look at what happened on that date. But that's not how our memory works and how our brains work. When you are recalling a memory, you're reconstructing something. You're trying to put these pieces together. You're trying to remember what you felt like. And so you might go through some process. Okay, this is what was going on. But again, it's not like a tape recorder that you're bringing back. And it's definitely exactly what comes to mind is what happened. You're recreating it. And also, each time you retell the story, because of how you say it, what parts get emphasized, a whole host of factors, that itself will affect how you remember it going forward. Um, there's some great research by, I believe it's Elizabeth Loftus, that looks at these types of things of misremembering things. They're quite fascinating. So they'll show people some pictures, for example, of a, a car accident, and they'll ask them some questions about it. And one of the questions will be like, you know, where was the stop sign? And there was no stop sign in the picture. And most people will correctly say there was no stop sign. They bring those people back like a week later and ask them again to tell us what was in that scene. And now a good percentage of them will talk about a stop sign, that there was a stop sign in the picture. So it seems clear that by asking that question, and now when they left the scene of the study, not the scene of the accident, but the scene of the study, it got mixed into, well, what was real and what wasn't real, that there was a stop sign in this picture. And now when they come back, retell the story, all of a sudden the stop sign is a part of their story. Or another one that's quite fascinating is this took some type of coordination with the families, but they would have people come in and say, have you ever been on a hot air balloon? And they'd say, no. And they say, actually, you were. Look, here's a picture of you. And it was a, a fake picture. They had used, I guess, Photoshop and some things. Look, here's a picture of you with your uncle in a hot air balloon from when you were six years old or something. Like, oh, wow. I, can't, I never knew that. Okay. They leave, come back, and they say, have you ever, you know, what happened? Like, you know, actually, I remembered what happened. And now they make a whole story up. Oh, yeah, we went. I remember it was like really windy. I was kind of scared. You know, we went, whatever. They're, they have a whole story. And so you hear that, I think, oh, these people are liars and they're just making things up that never happened. But this is really what we're all doing all the time. And our brain is filling in the gaps, trying to make sense of things, trying to make sense of this story that how can it make sense if I have this picture here? I might not remember it, but then you will reflect and come up with something that makes sense. Our brains, I talk a lot about it being predicting machines, but it's also a meaning-making machine. Things have to make sense. So if there's this picture and I have no reason to believe it's fake, I believe it's real, then I have to try to answer, well, yeah, maybe that did happen and now it makes sense. And what's difficult is that when we remember something or when we bring up something to our mind, whether it's imagination or we really experienced it, it's not going to be clear for us to differentiate which is which. You might think you would know, but we can't really know. You maybe have had the experience of texting someone back and you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to say this, this, and this. And then it turns out the next day or two days later, you see them or something happens. You're like, oh, I never sent that text. But because you thought about sending it, you had this experience of your mind of sending the text when it sits in your mind now, it's hard to remember, did I actually send the text or did I just think about sending the text? Another way people can experience this is you maybe realize 
you dreamt something, but you're not sure, did I dream that or was that a memory? Did that, did that actually happen or was that in a dream? Now, if you were flying or something, you probably realize, okay, that was probably a dream because I can't fly at least yet. So probably that was a dream. But other times it could be something more mundane and it might be hard to remember. Was that a dream or reality? Or is that what deja vu is, that experience of I've been there or have this experience before? Could it be you dreamt something like this? Or it could be, I think a lot of other things can give you that feeling, something similar is just experienced and felt. It could be from your past or it could be that it feels familiar for other reasons and you're a bit confused. So we recognize that in this book, Who Gets Believed? It's about believing other people or who we believe and don't believe. But in a, a strange way, not to make us even more confused, we do have to question, can I even believe myself and what I remember? Do, yeah, I think this is what happened or this is what I experienced, but I could understand that my memory, like anyone else's memory, is fallible, that it might seem so clear to me that this is what happened, but maybe that's not the truth. And I've also seen research and, and things they've done where they'll show people videos of something that happened after they've told a story or they've seen something and they have to recap or recount what happened. And people won't believe that, no, that wasn't me, or that, that you guys changed the video because there's no way I remember exactly what happened. So again, the confidence we have in a memory doesn't necessarily reflect how true it is. The confidence we have in what I remember is exactly what happened doesn't necessarily reflect how accurate that memory is. And so bringing it back to what I was saying about couples, um, it's such a common experience that sometimes even before we get into a heated argument recap and what happened, I will mention this, that just want you both to be aware that even though you were both there for this argument, you might have very different recollections of what happened and how things played out. Who said what, when, who kind of started it more, or who said this thing. And, and it's tough for me even when you're listening, because sometimes one will say, and then she said this, or then he said this. And the other person's like, I never said that. What do you mean? I never. And I was like, I can't believe you're lying now. You said that. I remember you said that. And it's tough as a listener because I don't know. And I sometimes have to tell them, you know, look, I can't tell you whether or not you said that or not. I was not there. But it seems like you're also having a hard time with that. And we have to somehow figure out how to have this conversation without knowing or making it established. Was that thing said or what, what happened there? And sometimes it might not be as important, but sometimes it can feel important. Or other times I will say, you know, if we try to spend a lot of time fixating on the details, we probably won't get anywhere because you remember things differently. We might have to find a way to move past that because what are we going to do? You say it was 10.15, the other person says it was 9 o'clock. Well, you know, maybe there's something we can do. We have some a camera there to tell us what happened. But other than that, we're probably not going to know exactly what the facts were in that kind of detail, and it could be difficult. But I say all this for us to, one, keep in mind the humility of our own fallibility with our memory. So our our brains are incredible. It's just amazing the things we can do and how we can remember things and think about things and the things we're capable of doing, but it's also a very fallible system too. It makes mistakes. And so being aware that as certain as you might feel about something, having some degree of um, humility will allow you to recognize, but I, I could be wrong. I remember it this way, but I I could be wrong. And then also when we're 
having disagreements, having conversations with one another, and then we're trying to recap them. Recognize that even if our partner remembers it differently, um, doesn't mean they're lying or manipulating. And we have to also, again, be aware I might not even be right. Maybe they're right. Or as we say, there's your side, there's their side, and there's the truth. There's something uh, that probably happened that you both are not exactly remembering right. And so it can be important to keep that in mind rather than going to the place of my partner is a liar, my partner is making things up, or my partner is hiding something from me because they they say things in that way. So just some things to keep in mind in your own conversations and to remember that even if it feels like you know something for a fact or you remember something accurately, our memories always feel very vivid in that way or they can feel very vivid, but that doesn't necessarily reflect on the accuracy of it. And so when someone is also telling us a story and if they don't remember all the facts, that doesn't mean they're lying. They actually might even be more accurate if they're not jumping to the conclusion that they know, oh no, I know it was this time or I know it was that time. Because when people are telling stories and recalling what happened, we know that they don't remember all the details. They won't remember every single thing that happened there. So just some things to be aware of when it comes to memory and our memories and when we're especially dealing with other people, that because we both are going to be fallible in our memories, that there's going to be discrepancies to be expected, but don't let that get in the way of trying to resolve what's going on. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, So in this last segment, I wanted to talk about um, uh, something about when we try to understand other people's experiences. So sometimes when we think of someone going through something, we say, I can't even imagine what that's like. And the truth is, you're right, that we can't imagine what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, someone else's experience, someone else's relationship, life circumstances, whatever it might be. Um, Sometimes we think we can or we think we know, but it could be important to recognize that we don't know. Because I I see this happening a lot in people looking at other people's lives. Oh, if I was him or if I was her, I'd be so happy. Or what do they have to complain about? And especially we see this with someone, for example, who um, is financially successful or famous and rich. Like, oh, okay, what are they? They they have nothing to complain complain about because of those things. And the truth is, we know, know what it's like to be in, in someone else's shoes. And so sometimes we're just thinking about one aspect of life and thinking, well, if I had that part of my life better, I'd feel good. But the truth is, some like finances, for example, once we're financially okay, as meeting our resources, we know that when you have more and more money, it's not going to make you happier. So even though you think it would be nice, it might be nice, but you'd get used to it. And then whatever are the uh, pains of life that you can experience, you could still experience them. Um, or if you think of someone who's in a relationship and you go, like, oh, that person's so lucky to be dating that person, married to that person. Um, and then if they get divorced, you see this a lot where people say, how would she divorce him? Or how did he divorce him? Or why did they break up? That was so stupid. Like they're just being, they don't even know what they had. I would love to be with that person. And you, you don't know, you don't know what it's like to be with someone in a relationship. You don't know what it's like or what they went through or what happened in their relationship to judge what it feels like to to be there. So 
the, the book today was Who Gets Believed by Dina Nayeri. And so here we have to, again, take a, a dose of humility to recognize we don't know what it's like to be someone else. Uh, you know, we talk about empathy. As, as a therapist, this is a big aspect of the work is to empathize with a client to make them feel you understand them or make them feel understood. Um, but we know that I can't understand you fully. And even it could sound paradoxical because we want to be understood. But when someone tells you at times, I understand what you're going through, it can, it depends on, of course, the context and how well we feel like they know us and they get us, but it can often feel very bad because we think they are assuming they know what we're feeling when they really don't. I actually remember a professor in graduate school uh, and I vividly, uh, that's funny, vividly remember, because maybe I remember it not so accurately, but what I remember from it is that one of my classmates was doing mock therapy and then he said, okay, show some empathy. And, and he said, I understand, I understand what you're feeling. And he said, no, don't say it that way. And it, it was surprising for us because it sounded like a nice thing to say that I understand you, but he was pointing this out that when you say that, it can make someone feel like you're in a way, minimizing their experience or making it seem like it's so simple to know, because again, we can't know. So what we're really trying to do is get a better understanding of what someone is feeling, knowing that we can't fully understand what it's like. So someone says, you know, these stories I'm reading, you were tortured for months and then seeking asylum and then go through this process. So I can't say, oh, I know what that feels like. I, I understand it. I can get the feelings I start to have. It's like, oh, that sounds horrible. It sounds so painful to go through that suffering and then fear for your life constantly and go through this unspeakable torture. And then finally you escape to seek refuge and the place where you think is safe, they reject you and think that your story is fake and a lie. I mean, I just say all that. And, and, and when I was reading all that, I was like, wow, that sounds horrible. And I think it would be horrible to experience but I have to be very careful not to say, okay, I, I know I could get what that's like. And people also do this and say, you know what I would do if I was me? I would have like every day woke up so motivated to just get my freedom that it would have been just the only thing on my mind. I wouldn't get discouraged. I would have done this or that. And, you know, it's a easy thing to say, but very difficult to do. And also very easy to say when you don't have to do, when you don't have to go through it. And so that's another thing to be very careful about. I, I hear people that will say, oh, if, I, if it was me, if I was a, you know, this is my situation, I would have just done that. Or if I was in their shoes, it wouldn't be, I don't think it's that hard. I would just do this and this and you just get over it. And so it's this way that it's very easy to imagine what you would do because you just imagine this best version of yourself and you don't have to feel the experiences and go through what it's like. It's very easy. Oh, okay. If I was addicted to some drug, I would just stop doing the drug and the next day do this and this and this. And it's, why? That's not hard, but that's not the reality of what it's like to go through that, the physical and emotional experience of that individual. It's not that simple. And what I always see is that anyone who makes that kind of a statement, they are dealing with some kind of problem that to someone else might seem easy, right? So they're having some issue with their work or relationships or whatever, because you're a human being. We all are uh, dealing with something and having some issues and having some parts of our life that aren't going so well. And so it's always easy for us to look at someone else and say, it would be easy to have their problems. And some of it is because we realize 
we're not doing so good always with our problems or we think we can do better. We wish we were. So it's a way of uh, putting it on someone else. Oh, like my life is tough. That would be easy. Or I know how to deal with, you know, my issues that are difficult, but that would be a, a simple thing. And it's something to be aware of when you're giving emotional support, which then might turn into advice before you get to the advice. Because people often say, oh, you know, yeah, I'm having this issue with my boss. You know what? You just walk in tomorrow and you just say, Mama, da, 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 and this and this and this. And what's God? They, they fire you. You'll find another job. It's so easy. And so people will give this kind of advice where everything seems so simple because they don't have to be there when it happens. They don't have to deal with the consequences. Just imagining in their head, right? So someone's like, oh, you know, I was... I saw this person, I kind of found them attractive, but I got shy and I didn't talk to them. Oh, it's so easy. Just go, what are they going to say? No, they just say no. And then you walk away and blah, blah, blah. And there's some truth to that. I would always encourage everyone to take those kinds of risks, whether it's professionally, personally, romantically, whatever it is, and face those fears, face those things that make us feel anxious. So that part is has a lot of truth to it. But the part where we make it seem like it's so easy and why would you care what people think? We all care what people think, unless you, um, you know, are have an antisocial personality. You're going to care what people think and what people feel. So it's understandable to care how much and how much it affects what we do. That's very important to think about and be aware of. But to be saying, I don't care what anyone thinks, or it doesn't matter what people think, or I would never do that. It, it's really not, uh, it's thinking we know what it's like to be in someone's shoes, without recognizing we never can know what it's like. You never can know what it's actually like to be in someone else's experience. And so when you are hearing someone tell you a problem that they're going through, the feeling is we want to get them to a place of homeostasis where they feel okay. So you have this problem somehow, either take the problem away, a solution, make them feel like they don't have to feel like the way they do. Oh no, maybe you don't have to be sad about that because look at this perspective. And even as a therapist, that's a lot of not a lot of what we do, but one aspect of what is done in therapy is providing reframing, you know, okay, you feel guilty about doing this thing and guilt can actually be a very healthy feeling, but we can also look at it this way. Could you have known that, you know, what you did was going to have this impact? So would it be fair to judge you and punish you for making a decision that seems right, but then turned out to have a bad consequence? And so it's giving them a different perspective, which actually might resolve or resolve some of the feeling. So that's some of what we do, but it's something to be aware of. Someone comes with us with a bad feeling and our sense is to get them back to a good place. Oh, you're sad about this? A breakup? Oh, you know, they weren't even right for you. There's so many fish in the sea. Oh, this thing. Okay, let me make you feel good. And sometimes that's helpful, but often it makes someone feel like their problem is small. And if their problem is bigger than that, it can be simplistic and feel like you're overlooking a lot. So Notice that tendency, but we can, we don't have to go towards that. We can recognize that someone's problem is, is something, it's real. It's something that they're dealing with, and it's probably not that simple. They likely have tried many things to deal with it. They likely have suffered with it and are trying to deal with it and might not know. And if they ask you for advice, then absolutely provide them with whatever advice you think is best. But be wary of providing the advice of, oh, this is easy. It's so simple. Because that can make someone feel like you're undermining what they're going through. So it's good to be aware of whatever problem you have for someone else might seem simple, especially from the outside. And maybe for some people it will be more simple and just like how other people's problems 
might seem simple. Most issues that we have, if we make it this simplified way, are easy. Oh, you're addicted? Stop doing the thing. You're procrastinating? Do the work. You have relationship problems? Talk about it. You have this? Do you know? It just seems simple from the outside, but life is much more difficult and challenging when you actually have to go through it and to do the things that you have to do to, to you know make things right in the ways that we're talking about. And then coming back to this theme that I was bringing up at the beginning, being very aware that we don't know what someone is going through what their life is like, what their internal experience is like. And especially in general, we have this, but with social media and and different factors that show people's lives on the surface, we can get so consumed with those surface reflections of who people are and what they're going through that we think we know. Oh, look how, look at their relationship. Look how happy they are. They look so good and they're, you know, dressed nice and they're in this nice place. So how, what, what do they have to complain about? And those things can be good. It's not they have no value, but they definitely have, don't have a complete value of being happy or feeling good about yourself or don't mean you don't have problems or issues. Um, everyone who got divorced took lots of pictures where they were smiling and happy together. Doesn't mean things can't be bad or can, can't get bad or get worse. And so when you think you know what it's like to be with someone or that being in a relationship with someone would feel a certain way or being someone's mother or father or son daughter, whatever it is, would be easy or good, it, it could be good to realize that you don't really know what it's like to be them. I don't actually know. I have a feeling and recognize that's coming more about you than about them. You see someone who's, you know, very famous, like, oh my God, what do they have to complain about? Okay, that's reflecting your own desire to be famous and well-known, which is a fairly common one that we can all have, but that's where that's coming from, that, okay, they're famous and that, that sounds cool. But it doesn't mean that if they get broken up with or if they go through a pain, it doesn't uh, hurt. If you stub your toe in a really nice house, it still hurts. If you you know, have some kind of pain happen, it doesn't mean everything's okay. And going back to a relationship, just we see the surface. What if the person is treating them poorly? What if they're having really bad fights? What if they're not compatible? It doesn't even mean one of them is bad or either of them is bad. It could just be that they're not compatible. And I see this a lot of relationships with families because especially in more traditional types of marriages, it's just about on paper. Well, they come from a good family and they're this and that, that's it. You have to be happy in this marriage, but that's not what a marriage and relationship is about. It's about the two people and how they interact and what's going on. So I see a lot of parents putting this pressure, no, no, you should marry him or you should marry her. It's right, you know, the right this and right age and whatever it is, you have to get married. Not knowing what if the person is treating your son or daughter poorly, that, that should be very important to you. And so we don't know what it's like to be in a relationship with this person. Only the two people in the relationship can know that. So when we look at who gets believed, the title of the book that I was discussing today, it's important to recognize that also we can't, again, believe ourselves that we think we know what someone else is going through. I'm trying to understand you better, but I can't say I understand and we hear people get in trouble when they do this. Oh, you know, I know exactly what it's like to be pregnant. I just, you know, you're just, yeah, I, I can get, you know, you're carrying this thing, it's growing. And, but I would still keep a positive, you know, and there's always this, this easy way of making it sound. I'll just keep my mindset this way, or I would do that. And people understandably get very upset when you say that, that, you know, you don't know what it's like until you, you, you experienced it. Or when people say stories of people who are in this freezing cold for three weeks and then they did this extreme thing. It's like, oh, I would never do that. I would never do that. You don't know what it's like to be in 
freezing cold for three weeks where you're, uh, you know, literally on the uh, cusp of death for a long period of time and don't know when you're going to get safety and warmth, it'll make you do things that you can't even imagine you would do. And in general, to remember that, that when someone does something, it's easy to think I would never do that and to judge them, but to, I think it's a very good mindset to have to recognize that it's very likely that anything that someone else did in a given circumstance, I could do that too. I would do that action. And people find themselves all the time doing something they would never thought they would do, but it's because they never got into that circumstance to do that thing. So again, a big theme throughout the show is having a certain dose of humility when we're remembering things and recalling something that happened, whether it's in our own lives, a historic type of event or flashbulb memory or an argument you had with a loved one, and also having a sense of humility when we try to understand other people or think we can understand other people and know what it's like to be in either a relationship or an experience and have that humility to know that I can't know. I could try to understand it or realize some things come up for me when I think about it but I have to know that I can't know and I can't completely understand. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Ghazale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Zan Zendegi Azadi. Mm-hmm.